Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 3. We've been spending uh, quite a bit of time here in this chapter, and there's good reason for that, because this doctrine of the new birth is so critical, so essential, so necessary, really, that it, uh, it, it's, it, it's good for us to park here um, another week on this portion of it anyway. And next week we'll finish the chapter. But you remember that uh, it says in verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night, said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs uh, that you do unless God is with them. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless, a man, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes, so is everyone who was born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? And Jesus said, are you, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. A really wonderful chapter, and it's, um, again, it's a doctrine of the church that is significant, because unless a man is born again, he cannot see or perceive the kingdom of God. He can't even enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. I would say that that's a pretty significant doctrine in the Bible. The new birth is absolutely necessary. That's why Jesus again said, you must be born again. In order to get to heaven, which everybody purports to say, have you noticed that? Even hardened criminals, you know, they're looking forward to heaven. Only the really Difficult ones say, I'm going to the, the party in hell where all my friends are. But most people will say, you know, you know, I've done some good things and maybe my good things will outweigh my bad things. And they'll think that they deserve heaven because of something they've done. But we know that that's not the case. We go to heaven by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we're saved. We're saved by grace through faith. 
and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. Why? Because it is not of works, lest, any, lest anyone should boast. Because we would boast if we had anything to do with it. We would boast. We would t- tell everybody that, the, that we had something to do with this. But the fact of the matter is Jesus has done everything. Notice in verse 7, we, we looked at the um, verses 1 through 6. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Notice, you must. It's not something that you should consider. It's not just a, something that's a good idea. The word must in the Greek means just like it does in English. <laughs> you, it must. You must be born again. And I pray that every one of you here and everyone online are born again. It's the only way we are going to get to heaven because a new nature, the very spirit of Christ is indwelling us. And as Peter would tell us, unless the spirit of Christ is in us, we are none of his. We have no right to be claimed a Christian. So there's no way else into heaven. In Romans chapter 10, it says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Isn't that wonderful? It's, there's, think of how simple that is. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and again, there's a lot there. If you confess it, that means you believe it. You believe what he said. You believe who he said he was. You believe everything that he said and did. So therefore, if you confess that with your mouth, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which is critical to our understanding, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love that. Whoever calls on the Lord. Does that sound like just a few people? Does that sound like just the Jews, just the Gentiles, just only a a few? or, Or does whosoever or whoever, does that mean everybody? It does. The gospel is very... Narrow, it's a narrow path, but it's everyone is invited on that narrow path. Everyone can fit. God will make sure that you can fit on that narrow path. Whether you're a Buddhist, whether you're a member of Islam, whether you're a, it doesn't matter your background, whether you're a Jehovah's Witness, a Mormon, a Rastafarian, doesn't matter. All are welcome. And notice in verse 8 what the Lord says to Nicodemus in this wonderful interview. Jesus said, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. It reminds me of the day of Pentecost, when the, wind, the sound of a rushing wind came. It doesn't say that there was a rushing wind. The sound of a rushing wind came, and cloven ty- uh, f- uh, tongues of fire stood over each of them. And he says, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. You cannot tell where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born again of the Spirit. And this here, folks, is the great mystery concerning the salvation of the soul. It is a mystery. One person hears it the first time. They hear the gospel the first time and they receive it. And yet another hears it for decades rejecting it, rejecting it, rejecting it, and then finally submitting their heart to Christ. 
Who is sufficient for those things? How do we figure that out? How is it that one person can hear it and and give up their heart to Christ, and yet somebody else can be badgered by friends and family over decades, and they will just dig in their heels like a dog who doesn't want to go for a walk? And they just dig in their heels, and they don't want to yield to Christ. The mystery. Do you understand? It's a mystery. You are a miracle. If you are here this morning and you're born again, you are a walking miracle. Because you didn't go of your own volition. You didn't stand up and just says, I will receive Christ. And they put a stamp on your head. Next. Stamp on the head. Saved. Saved. Sozo. You know, in the Greek, saved. 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 No, it's a mystery. It is a mystery. And don't be discouraged by that mystery because God is in that mystery. We can't figure that out. I have no idea how he got to me. I heard the gospel many times, and why is it that one day, and you can attest to the story yourselves, I'm sure, why is it that one day my heart was wide open for some reason? I didn't even know my heart was even wide open. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe, maybe the angels put in the jaws of life and cranked that thing open and got the fire department involved. I don't know what it was, but somebody, God, mystery of mysteries, he saved my soul, and you too. I love it. It is a great mystery. And we have to be careful with this mystery and not use it to judge one another. A truly born-again believer, and we all know this, can sometimes we can, really do, we can do really careless things in a moment of the flesh. Does it mean that we're, we're perfect when we give our heart to Christ and we're born again? No, it doesn't mean we're perfect. It means we're forgiven. And then when I do sin, I confess it and I'm forgiven because of the blood of Christ, right? But sometimes we see believers in a moment of weakness do something, say something, and we can kind of get on their case and condemn them, believing that they really weren't saved to begin with. Have you been, have you been around people like that? Yeah, I don't know if he's really saved. I don't know if she's really saved. She's driving a really fancy car and it's red too. It's a convertible And all I've got is this 1975 Yugo. My friend had a Yugo, and we used to actually pick it up in high school. We'd pick up the front front end of the car and move it over into a different spot just because we could. But anyway. But, you know, people look at each other kind of with these, like a cat testing new eyes. You know, I don't think that they're saved because they said that, they did that. They're they're, they're letting their kids go to public school. I, I don't know that they're saved or not. I don't think they are. Besides, they got a nice house. Have you been around people like that? So we have to be really careful. It's a mystery. God is working, and it takes time. And the process of sanctification is lifelong. He takes you where he found you, the mess, the cesspool that you were lying in, and he takes you from that place, and he continues to transform you from that place, from glory to glory. And is it a process? Yes, it is. And every one of us start in that process a little different. It looks a little different, but boy, we got to be careful not to look at each other and go, well, you started off down there and you're in a, in a mess and you must be in sin. But that just exposes our immaturity, doesn't it? We have to look at each other a whole lot differently. We have to look at each other as blood-bought Christians. Because God, I can tell you right now, he doesn't look upon you like that. He smiles on all of us, knowing that we're all in different places. And he's okay with that. We don't like it. We want the cookie cutter. 
Everybody the same, everybody do the same thing, everybody think the same thing right at this moment, perfectly conformed to image of Christ, robots, you know, just lemmings. No, it's not like that. It's much more rich and wonderful and mysterious than that. I mean, sure, if the overall tenor of a person's life is one of rebellion and continuing in sin, we have every reason to believe there's something wrong here, right? Even Jesus said that in Matthew 7, verse 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. And if every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, therefore, notice what Jesus says, by their fruits you will know them. And so if the overall tenor of my life is that, then I've got, I should be concerned. But we need to love one another. You know, that's one of the biggest reasons that churches split and people get angry and they leave churches because they have these little squabbles and usually it's all about the flesh. It's all about some little thing that you just don't agree with. And you know, you may be right, But don't assume, don't rush to judgment. Pray for that other person, that other family, and let God work. You're not the Holy Spirit. He does a pretty good job without you. Thank you very much. He does a much better job without me. And if I do say something, may I be the person in prayer before I do and get my heart right, right? So we need to be careful. Because the Bible says that there's none that do good. All have fallen short of the glory of God. What is it? Romans 3.23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Galatians 3.22. The scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Psalm 14, a psalm of David, he says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Boy, that's a blast to the self-esteem. <laughs> I'm awful. You know, would to God that children in schools and colleges and universities had a better understanding of who they really were? They'd be a great morning, and the school and the universities would be like, we got to get rid of this thing. It's killing all of our kids. No, it's the best thing that ever happened to them. When they realize who they are outside of Christ, that's when the work begins. That's the beautiful thing. When a heart breaks, when a heart knows that it's in rebellion against God, that is the very beginning, and we should never get in the way of that. No school should get in the way of that. I don't care about self-esteem. My problem is I got too much self-esteem. I think too much of myself. I don't think about enough about other people. That's the problem. We're always thinking about ourselves. David says, they have done abominable works. And this is God saying, There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. And here's the answer. They've all turned aside. They've all together become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Oh, another spear in the heart. Oh, but you know what? It's good for us to know that because God loves you. He does. So be careful of our hearts in judging and gossiping, backbiting. And I'm not saying that any of you are doing those things, but in the church in general, every generation of, in the church has struggled with these things. And every church has these problems. And we're no different. We, we are not exempt from these things. But we have to 
be careful about these things and being puffed up in spiritual pride against other people. These are the kind of things that break churches up. But let's be a fellowship that understands this, truly loves each other. And you know, for the most part, we do. You know, we're growing just like every other church. And may we be like that. May we be like that. We're all growing. We, we all need patience, compassion, and love for one another, realizing that we are all in different places, different seasons. In different seasons. We're all in different seasons. And yet we are all loved and accept, accepted by Jesus. Can we love and accept each other and be gracious with each other? I think we can. I think we can. There are things that keep people away from each other. You know, the COVID vaccine, that's another great one. Some people get it, some people don't get it. That's, your, that's okay. There's no problems. And yet people in the church, you got the COVID vaccine, you were injected with fetal tissue. You know, and you hear this kind of stuff, and we don't even know if any of this stuff is true or not. And yet, we watch too much YouTube. We watch too much other stuff that we get on Facebook. Be very careful about that stuff. Really? Is it the mark of the beast? No, it's not the mark of the beast. But yet, people in the church get bent toward one another. So we have these problems with the vaccine, face masks. Don't get upset with each other. Whether you, if you're unvaccinated... Don't wear a mask. If you think it would stumble somebody in, your, in their presence and you think it would be good for you to wear a mask, wear a mask. Even though you're vaccinated, you have that freedom. Homeschooling, that's another one that breaks people up. We've had people homeschooling. We've had people in private Christian schools. We've had people in public schools. And there can be all this stuff in the background. I can't believe they let her go to a public school. And yet... That person is in a place where they can actually handle it. Not every kid should go to a public school. I think the parents know, and sometimes they have no choice. But is it right for us to bicker and gossip and backbite and pass judgment on stuff like this? I don't think it is. What about boundaries with your teen, your teenager in your house, the clothing they wear? It's a battle for any family the music, the makeup, all these things. Teens are not cookie-cutter people, right? All of us as parents, we all desire the same thing, but we have to prayerfully work on these things, and it's not easy. But notice in verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said, how can these things be? Now notice the difference that Jesus makes here. He makes it an internal thing because that's really what it's always been. is about the internal, not the external. We looked at it last week that Nicodemus was just thinking externally because that's all he knew. He didn't, he didn't understand the, the internal reality of this. Remember what um, the Lord said to Samuel when Samuel went to look at Jesse's sons. God had told him to go to Jesse's sons. And he saw Jesse's eldest son, Eliab, and what did the Lord say to Samuel? Don't look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I've refused him. For the Lord, notice this, very important, the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I want to be more like God. I can't see into my own heart, much less yours. But i got to be careful. God knows your heart. But it's always about the internal. God, Jesus, is always about the internal. 
And so Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? And Jesus expected him to know this. What does it say in Luke? For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to him, to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Nicodemus was given a lot. He was a ruler. He was one of the Pharisees, part of the Sanhedrin. And Jesus expected him to know this. And certainly he is going to know this. Again, is it going to take some time? Yes. I think after this meeting, you know, those are probably another three years while Nicodemus chewed on this reality that Jesus is speaking to him so that by the time he and Joseph of Arimathea took that body down, he was no longer uncertain about who he was. No, he bet his whole career and life upon who Jesus was. Verse 11, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak that we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. In John chapter, in, in, in 1 John, remember what John said. John the Apostle said, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, notice, with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Speaking of Jesus, of course, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Notice how many parts of the senses that are involved in this. We've not, we haven't, we've not only heard him, but we've seen him. We've handled him with our own hands. We've touched him. Thomas put his hand on the wound where Jesus had the spear go in and the, and the nail prints in his hands. And he, and he fell apart. He says, my Lord and my God. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. And that's what John here is speaking of. And he goes on in verse 12, and Jesus says, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You know, the things that Jesus does and the way that he teaches things are very simple. A child can understand. But sometimes the older we get, sometimes the greater education that we receive, sometimes that can be a liability to us. Sometimes, sometimes that can be a stumbling block to us because we learn, we read, we think too much. I know people like that. They think too much. There's nothing wrong with thinking, but sometimes you can think yourself into a tailspin. And you're like the dog chasing the tail. Have you ever seen that? I just, I love that. It's just like, you know, that... Verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven, Jesus says, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. In some Greek manuscripts, uh, the phrase, who is in heaven, is not there. And so it could read like this, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man. See, only Jesus can explain the mysteries of heaven. Why? Because he had been there. He had been there from eternity past. He, of all people, knows eternal things. He knows the heaven. He knows heaven. He knows everything about it. He knows what it's all about. And he's able to talk about what it is all about. 
Only he can explain the mysteries of heaven because he was there. Even before his incarnation, before he was born in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And you notice, and then he came to the earth and he ultimately ascended after his crucifixion. Or after his resurrection. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven. He is there now. There is a man in heaven bearing the prints of the, the nails and the spear in his body. He is there. And he came down. He is the only one qualified to share what it's all about. And he's telling us. And he told Nicodemus. And we also believe, based on the word of God, that Jesus made visitations to earth before he was even born. We call these theophanies or Christophanies. And this is where we call them pre-incarnate visitations of Jesus. Which means that before he was born into the womb of the Virgin Mary, that he appeared in another form to different saints in history, at different times, for reasons that he knows. And we know a few of these in Joshua 5. Remember when Joshua was about ready to go into the promised land? He sees the commander of the angel of the army standing there with a sword drawn. He worships the angel. No angel receives worship except for Satan. He wants you to worship him. But no angel, that was the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in a pre-incarnate form, speaking to Joshua. What about in Genesis 18, when those three angels came to Abraham before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed? Read that chapter very carefully and watch the pronouns and watch the word Lord, Jehovah, being written there. You'll see that one of those angels was Jesus Christ incarnate. He calls him Lord Yahweh, Jehovah, and he receives worship. What about in Judges chapter 3, Manoah and his wife, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, another Christophany or theophany of Jesus. But Jesus, he descended from heaven to earth at times and ultimately was incarnate in the Virgin Mary. Suffered and died on the cross. Three days rose again from the grave. Forty days later rose to the throne of God. Where he ever lives to make intercession for us. Preparing a place for us that where he is, we might also be. How I long for that day. Do you really long for that day? I I can't wait for the day when the trump sounds. I don't care what it's going to sound like. I'm just, I'm going up. And you're going up. Looking forward to that day. And yes, I do want to escape this planet. People say, well, that's just a crutch because you don't like what's going on. Absolutely. (laughs) Anybody who goes, you know, thinks, I I just love this place so much, I can't wait. Hey, can I go to Portland and watch the riots? Yeah, let's do it. Let's pack in the car and go down there and let let somebody blow up our car and beat us over the head with a club. That sounds like a great thing. No, I'm, I want to be done here. I'm done. I'm living, and I, hopefully I'll be a, a good witness until the Lord comes, until either I die of natural causes, or he causes something to happen, or the rapture. I don't care how it happens. I'm looking forward to being with him. There's nothing here on this earth that holds me. Nothing. You can have it all. I'm gone. Out of here. Do you feel that way? Yeah, I do. But notice in verse 14, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, even so, 
must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever, underline that word whoever in your Bible, very important. Whenever you see the word whoever, that means whoever. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. And while you're turning there, I just want to share a few things with you. Here in verses 14 and 15, Jesus prophesies not only that he was going to die, which was no mystery to him. It had been prophesied for hundreds and even a couple thousand years that he would die on the cross, that he would die. But this verse also tells us how he is going to die. The Jewish form of capital punishment, as you know, was stoning. That's what they did. They stoned. But the Romans developed the art of crucifixion as a form of capital punishment, learning it from the Persians and then now mastering it in the first century. Boy, they were excellent executioners. They could keep somebody alive on the cross for days if they wanted. If they, if they really didn't like you, they could keep you alive by giving you support and giving you water, which you're naturally going to take, and it's just going to prolong your agony on that cross. They were excellent at it. They were masters at execution. But Jesus, in these verses, 14 and 15, number one, prophesies that he's going to die and also how he was going to die. Look with me at verses 4 through 9. It says, and this is back in, in, the, in the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were going through the, the desert on their way from Egypt into the Promised Land, a 40-year journey. Ouch. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way, and the people spoke against God. Notice, the people spoke against God and against Moses. And here's their complaint. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless manna, this bread, God, that you gave us. We hate it. We've had manakati, we've had... Manashevit sandwiches, we've had, you know, we've had all this stuff, manna burgers, manna ice cream, manna tea, we're fed up. <laughs> so, so the Lord, notice, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you, Moses. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people, and then the Lord said to Moses, notice what he does. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, a wood pole. Put a serpent, a fiery serpent, and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent. Bronze is always a symbol of judgment. Bronze. Brass. Okay? Make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, that when he or she looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Notice the wood pole. Is just like the cross. Here, Jesus, as he tells us this in verse 14 and 15 in John, he's telling them, giving them a foreshadowing of what God meant way back there in Numbers 21. He was giving them in a type of what was going to happen a couple thousand years down the road. That Jesus... So, the serpent, which is a symbol of sin, was pinned to that wood... And Jesus, as we know, and, and, and a serpent is a symbol of sin, right? So it was pinned to the pole on the wood pole. Jesus became sin for us, and he bore our sin in our place. What does Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians say? 
For he made him, speaking of God the Father, God the Father made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus did. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Isn't that what it says in Isaiah? Notice in Numbers 21 here, though, that all the, pe- all the people had to do is when they were bit by the poisonous snake, all they had to do is to look at the serpent on the brass pole and they would be healed. By faith, they did that, right? It was by faith, believing what God had said, that they would be healed from the snake bite and they would survive the physical snake bite. Do you understand? This preserved them physically by looking at the serpent on the pole. All they had to do was exercise faith and believe what God said was true and simply look at the pole. You know, we're such rascals. If, God, if that were to happen today, say we're out camping in the Adirondacks and a cottonmouth grabs onto somebody and they're like, man, you got like 45 minutes and you're dead, you know. And then you're like, well, just hold up the brass pole. Put the serpent on it. I will not look. Just look at it, man, and confess, you know, and, and ask the Lord to heal you. I won't look. Okay, then he dies, you know, and then he does. He dies. And, and yet he could have just looked at the pole. How, how much more simple could God have made it? He didn't say, well, you've got to go through these five points. You've got to jump through this hoop on fire, by the way. The hoop's got to be on fire like the lions in the circus. You've got to jump through that hoop and then jump through another one. And then you've got to confess and, you know, get out the rosary and go. No, it, it, was, it was simple. Just look at the pole and you'll be saved. How much more simple could it be? See, we're the rascals. God makes it very simple for us. But we are rebels. Rebels. Anybody here a rebel? Maybe not anymore. I don't know. Wow, only a couple people. Only Pastor Richard raised his hand. (laughs) Yeah, but notice, by faith, Enoch was taken away, so he didn't see death. And what does it say in verse 6 here? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. What does it say in Ephesians 2 verse 8? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. We've said this before, a great verse to memorize, by the way. It is the gift of God. It's not of of ourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is simple faith. Just believe. Just believe what God says. Don't argue with him. Don't try to come up with a better way. Don't try to bring your intellect into it and think you know better than God. Believe me, if God tells me to stand on my head for five minutes and my headache will go away, then I'm going to do it as long as I know it's him. If he tells me to do something, I want to do it. Notice this passage's numbers, you know, it's referring to a physical, temporary thing. If they don't look, they'll die physically, right? But notice, Jesus is speaking about life everlasting, which is eternal. So he's drawing a comparison. You know, if you look at the, if you get bit by the snake, look at the pole, the serpent on the pole, and you'll live. And Jesus is saying, just as the Son of Man, or just as the serpent was lifted up on the pole, so will the Son of Man be lifted up on a pole, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now we're not even talking about a physical life anymore. We're talking about something that supersedes it, that lasts for eternity. I may only live 90 years on this planet. I don't know what my, what, when I'm going to expire, but it's a short time in compared to eternity. <laughs> Think, it never ends. 
I mean, let your heart grasp that because we're talking about eternity. It will never end, ever. I want to be with him. I don't want to be in a place of, of, of fire and torment. Yeah, it's, it's, worth, it's worth having, you know, jumping up and screaming and shouting and eating ice cream. I mean, it, it's <laughs> even more so. It's exciting to think what God has done. But the truth of the word of God was meant to be taken and applied internally that it might produce the behavior and the attitudes in the external. Because it's what is internal that manifests itself in the outward. That's why Jesus would say in Matthew 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's what's in here that's the problem, not so much what comes from outside. That may be a problem too, but the problem is within The problem is within, and there's a big difference that Jesus made between comparing his words with the words of the Old Testament. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but he's the author of both. There's not a one author of the Old Testament and one author of the New Testament. No, he authored the whole thing. He knew it very well. He quoted it. He quoted from Genesis. He quoted from Exodus, from Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. While he was alive, Jesus quoted it. Why? Because he's the author of it. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He knew exactly what he needed to say. He didn't didn't need to paraphrase. No, he said it exactly. He meant what he said and said what he meant. Remember on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comparing the physical to the external. His words were focusing on the real heart of the matter, the internal things, the internal things. Let me just read a few of them to you. Remember when Jesus was speaking in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, and this is the Old Testament law written in Exodus, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. Bah, but I say to you, are you kidding me? You're going to But I say unto you, that means that your words that you're about to speak are on equal footing with what is in the Old Testament. Of course, because he wrote it. But he's giving the ultimate understanding of it. Because the Jews and us, we we tend to think things just in the the physical. Well, if I don't murder somebody, then I'm good. And Jesus goes and he goes, oh no, it's much more than the external. It's what's going on inside. And he proves it. He says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother, that's what's on the inside, Without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So now he's not talking about the physical act of murder. It's what's inside. What did he say in verse 27 of that verse, of that chapter? You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Oh, that's, you know, many of us in this room have not committed adultery physically, hopefully none of us. But if we did, Jesus is speaking now internally to something that they didn't even consider. And yet people can walk around, oh, I haven't, I haven't done that. I've always been true to my wife. Oops. You're driving along with your wife in your car, and there's a young lady on a bike, 20-something, jogging. What do you do, guys? Where are your eyes? Right? He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ouch. Right? Something internal. Furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And it goes on and on. And he's comparing the physical to the spiritual. It was always about the internal. Because if you can conquer what's in here, like James said, if you can conquer this little tongue, that man's religion is something. But if a man says he 
is walking with the Lord, but he can't bridle his tongue. He can't bridle the rest of his body either. It's always internal. It's always internal. And that's what being born again, that's why it's so significant. And we are to work out what God has already done within. If you are not born again of the Spirit of God, there is nothing within you that can be worked out that's of any worth. Do you understand that? There, that's why the Bible says there's none good, right? We are to be light bearers. But if the light, the Spirit of God, is not within us, within me, then all I am projecting, all that you are projecting is darkness, self, and the flesh. Isn't that wonderful? That's all I'm projecting. If the Spirit of God is not in me, that's what I'm projecting. Self, the flesh, and darkness. In Philippians 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, notice what Paul says, work out your own salvation. No, that doesn't mean that you have to work to gain it. No, you get salvation by faith in Christ, you, are, you, you get that salvation as a free gift based on Jesus's, but now that it's in there, work it out. Allow it to work out. Work it out. Notice, because it tells us in the very next verse, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's who causes it to happen. He, first he makes me to will to do it, and then he gives me the grace to do it. He has to conquer the old man first, right? That's why it says he works in you both to will first. There's an order here. The will has to be challenged. The will has to be subdued. And then we can do of his good pleasure. But the will, what a nasty rascal that is. I need to, my will needs to be broken. Your will needs to be broken. Isn't that what they do when they break a horse? When you find a stray horse out in the desert... Can you just put a saddle on that horse? Any of you who are horse lovers know that that would be a death sentence. <laughs> if you don't know what you're doing, you're going to get beat. <laughs> you're going to get beat up. That horse is going to kick you off and stomp on you. No, it has to be broken. I need to be broken. You need to be broken. And right, many, right now, many of you are working in your gardens because spring is here. And you're planting flowers and seeds and when you plant that seed in the ground, there are many different types of seeds. You can put, have a bunch of different seeds. You don't know what they are. I mean, in, in the package you do, but if you mix them up, you don't know. So you plant them and you wait and see what happens. But it's what's inside of that seed that brings it, it manifests itself. And when it grows, you see, oh, it's a beautiful rose or it's a beautiful you know, tulip, whatever it is. You don't know. But it's what's inside that matters. It's what's inside that manifests itself to show the beauty and the glory, right? That's what our gardening is about. It's a, it's a lesson for us to think about the new birth, right? Jesus said in the parable of the wheat and the tares, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemies came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And you, remember, you know what happens? The, the gardener comes and says, should we just tear up the, all, the, all the tares? He says, no, wait until the end, because if you tear up the tares, you're going to tear up the wheat as well. You know, I am so glad that in churches people come. And some, there are many, I don't know how many there are, only God knows, but there are some that come to church here and even other churches that really aren't born again. They come for different reasons, and I'm glad that they're coming because they need to come. Because how are they going to know what the truth is unless they hear it? Right? So would to God this whole church was filled with unbelievers, with people who don't know, along with people who do, of course. 
But it's important, right? It's important. And God is not slack concerning his promise, but he's long-suffering, he's patient toward us, he's not willing that any should perish. So are you growing in Christ's likeness? Or are you forcibly holding on to your own? I, I, I got two choices. I can either hold on to my own life. Did, didn't Jesus say uh, uh, if a man loses his life, he, he, um, you know, he's, he's not going to gain it? If you give your life away to him, you're going to gain it. But if you hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. What a shame it is for someone to spend their whole life doing their own will and then realize in their, in their old age, when they finally got their retirement and they're living somewhere where it's warm, I've wasted my life. I didn't do anything for the kingdom of God. And you know what? If that's where you're at right now and you're born again, just confess that and, 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 and let the Lord use you right where you're at. There's no, there's no condemnation. But it's better when you're young to give everything to God. Give everything to him. There's no greater thing. Give him, no matter what your age, right now, start today, regardless of where you're at, regardless of what season of life you're in, start right now and give your heart to Christ completely and say, Lord, what would you have me do? I'm living my life doing my own thing, but I'm not doing anything. I'm just kind of spinning my wheels. What, what can I do? What should I do? What would you have me to do? And if you earnestly pray for that, I can promise you he will show you. And step out in faith and try something too. Don't be afraid to step out in faith and try something. He'll never upbraid you for trying something. If you've got an inkling in your heart, step out and try. See what happens. Maybe the best thing you've ever done. Right? Notice, for God so loved the world. How am I... Is that clock right? Oh... I'm sorry. <laughs> For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Notice, God doesn't love the systems of the world, but he loves the inhabitants of the world. We don't, we're not supposed to love the world in the sense of its systems and the things that it's about, but the people in the world, that's who God is talking about. Even in 1 John, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Because all the world is, is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, right? And that's what it is. But he says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Notice that God the Father gave this gift of his son. Jesus is the gift of salvation to fallen man. The just for the unjust. The righteous for the unrighteous. Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well. We'll see this in a, in a couple weeks. Jesus said to the woman at the well, If you knew the gift of God... And who it was who says to you, give me to drink, you would ask him and he would give you some, some living water. He is the gift. For God so loved the world, the people in the world, everyone in the world, regardless, he so loved the world that he gave as a gift. Notice it's not something you earn. A gift is something that's given, not something you've earned. God gave Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, that whosoever, anybody, believes in him would not perish eternally, but have everlasting life. Everlasting life. That is the key to it all. John 3.16 is no doubt the most popular verse in the Bible. Even unbelievers can quote this verse, but they don't know it. Because within this short verse is the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave. Why did he give him? Why did he give his only begotten son? Well, because of sin. 
And what's the, what's the result of him giving his son on the cross and dying for us? It's eternal life. It's all there in germ form, isn't it? And I just want to show something for you, something to you that's kind of fun that I found out that this is kind of interesting. In the um, in in the English Bible, the King James, the New King James, and the New American Standard, it has this verse exactly as it is in here. And I love the fact, and this is just a silly little thing, but and again, it's only in these three translations. But there's twelve words on on each side, and the very center word is. Son. It's like it all points to the sun. It's like the arrow's going this way, the arrow's going back. It's pointing to the sun. It's all about Jesus. In fact, didn't Jesus say, in the volume of the book, it is written of me? In the volume of the book, it is written of me. It's all about him. Now, in the Hebrew, it doesn't show up this way. It's got its other wonderful peculiarities, but, but I, I thought this was just kind of interesting to see. But notice what it says in verse 16. Whoever, whoever, it's the same word in the verse 15. There is no such thing as limited atonement as the Calvinists and the Reformed theologians purport. Whoever means whoever. Salvation is open to every single person, no, exception, no exceptions, that's God's grace and love. That's who he is. That's his nature. And for those who hold to these strict forms of Calvinism and even the Reformed theology, you're wrong. You're wrong. You've stumbled over a few verses and you've built and embraced a doctrine that is lopsided and does not take in the whole counsel of God. And do you understand that that's how cults get started? I'm not saying it's a cult to believe in Reformed theology, but I am saying this, that when you take something out of context and you don't understand the whole counsel of God, you can run away and build a whole mountain on this one doctrine, and it can be totally wrong. The Calvinists and the Reformed theologians believe that, you know, um, you know that God is uh, all-sovereign, and, and he is all-sovereign, and he chooses but he's got an unfair advantage. He lives outside of time. We are stuck in time. So therefore, him being outside of time, we're stuck in time. There's the difference. That's why he can say things in advance that we don't understand. But every person is responsible. Every person is accountable. It's not like God says, here's the gospel to only a few people. Only a few people are saved. No, that is a lie from the pit of hell. It's open to every single human being. And if you read the entire Bible, it does say that. God is sovereign, but man is responsible. Both are true, period. Not one or the other. They're both true. They're both true. <laughs> in fact, in Isaiah 57, it says, Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. God inhabits eternity. We don't. He knows what's going to happen, but he doesn't make it happen. With us, he allows us free will and free choice. But again, he's got the unfair advantage. I don't know why they, people don't understand that. The difference is the vantage point. If I'm looking in time, that might be a struggle. But when I think about God looking outside of time, he knows what choice I'm going to make. He doesn't make me choose. He doesn't say, well, you're not chosen, so I'm not going to share. With you. No, he shares with every single person. Every person is accountable before God. Does that make sense? Because he knows. Read Psalm 139. He knows the words that we're going to speak tomorrow. Therefore, he knows all things. He can't learn. He knows what we're going to do, but he doesn't make us do that thing. We are accountable, and we have the decision to make. Does that make sense? I don't know about you, but it's very simple to me. I like being simple because I believe that's the truth, and the entire Word of God speaks to that. 
Whoever believes in him should not perish. And the implication in this last phrase of verse 16 is that if you don't believe in Christ, there is only one other option for you, and that's the second death. We looked at that when we were in Revelation chapter 20. Verses 11 through 15 talks about the second death. That all who have died physically will be resurrected in a body and they will be sentenced to the lake of fire for eternity. That is the second death. That's what Jesus is speaking about here. He's speaking about a, 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 a spiritual thing. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You know, it's an unfortunate thing, but some people have this warped idea of who God is. They think that he's just this angry man in the upstairs. You know, I've even heard that. It's such a, an unfortunate thing. You know, he's, he's not some angry God in the sky who just can't wait to crush people. There are churches that teach that. You better watch out. God is angry with you. You sinner. I've heard that. I've heard that. Unfortunately, my mother grew up in, a, in an environment like that where it was so strict. I mean, don't, don't even look cross-eyed. You know, I mean, everything was just like, you know, you just you had a fear. I mean, if they even put sandals on. You know, I mean, it was this kind of legalism and this kind of uh, thing. It was just not good. It's not good. That's not who God is. He doesn't want to ruin anything. He wants to bless. He wants to bless you. God wants to love and bless you. Yes, he will warn you, but he wants to save your soul. Notice verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not what? He's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Why should anybody be condemned? It's because they don't believe in Christ. You have a decision. We have a decision to make. I can either reject him or I can receive him. And notice that it is by faith in Jesus that's the key. It's not baptism. It's not anything else. It is faith in Christ alone. Plus, nothing. <laughs> There's nothing else. It's faith in him alone. And there are plenty of scriptures concerning that. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And this is why people go to hell, because they love their sin much more than they love Jesus. And they won't give up. They made a determination. I'm not going to give it up. And God will let you. He will let you hang on to your sin, if that's what you want. He's not going to force you. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed and before we were born again, our lives were all about practicing evil, wasn't it? I thought I had original sin. I thought I had, I had, had it down like I mastered sin. I think we all feel that way. But happy is the man or the woman who walks in the light and has no shame. Because sin has a way of making us feel shame and making us afraid you know, in Florida, Chris and Margo, when you go to Florida, you're going to encounter a creature that I know about, and it's called the palmetto bug. They're in every single house. And God help you if at midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning you go out to the, the, the refrigerator to get something to drink because you're thirsty, and you turn on the light, you may be surprised. There may be one of these little critters on your countertop. Palmetto, they're about that long, 
Thank God they don't have teeth, but they're that long. They got wings and they look horrifying. But when you turn on the light, they scamper away. And it's just like us, you know. In our sin, God turns on the light and just like those palmetto bugs, you know, they go away. We're like those palmetto bugs. But notice, but he who does the truth, there's something about the truth that it's not just something I learn in my head. It's something that I've got, I've got to do something with that truth. I've got to do something with it. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. The truth needs to be expressed in the things that we do and think. We have to act upon it. We have to act upon it. What did James say? Let me, let me find it here. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You can say you have faith, but where, how do you qualify that statement if I'm living in rebellion? But if I say I have faith in God, it ought to change me. There ought to be something I'm doing with that faith. I don't, I don't do something to be right with God, but when he's in me, then I do something as a result of what he has already done. Do you, know, do you understand the difference? I don't do it to earn his favor. I do it because I already have the favor of God, because I'm already saved and born again. I do those things as a result of that. It, it comes out of my life. That's the way it should be. He says, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Works can't save you. Your faith saves you. But if you're truly walking in faith, the truth, it will change your life. It ought to change your life. It ought to change the way I do things. Right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through him, he says. So are you born again? (laughs) This is it. We're going to pray. I know I've taken you a little longer and I apologize. But if there's anyone here today that has not made that decision, and whether you're online or, or here in person, come up afterwards. Receive Christ. Pray with somebody next to you. Receive Christ. You've got everything, and I mean everything, to gain. You've got nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. There's nothing that's so important that you're doing right now that you're going to lose that's of any value if you give your heart to Christ. You will only gain every, everything in, in heaps and bounds. It's so wonderful. Give your heart to Christ today. And if you already have, then recommit your heart to him. Recommit it. Let's stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning again, and, and Lord, I just pray that this message of the new birth, Lord, we, we've been in it for three weeks. Lord, may it really take root into our heart for those who are here present, for those who are online. God, we ask that you would convict every heart, Lord, concerning the need, the necessity of the new birth. Lord, that we'll spend eternity with you. So, Father, we just we, we surrender today, and we give you our hearts afresh. And we love you, and we thank you for your great love for us.
We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. 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 God bless you.